Have you ever experienced something that can only be explained by the power of God? Some moment or someone so filled with the Holy Spirit that you believe or believe all over again? That God is real, that God is with us, heaven touching earth? The Holy Spirit's movement, power, and grace can be experienced over a lifetime like an artist learns to paint or a dancer learns the steps. As we give up our own might and power and are instead clothed with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are seeing God's kingdom come on earth. We are seeing the way we were meant to live, the way we were built to move. In Him we find our being. We need strength when ours fails. We long for comfort in every circumstance. Skeptics seek a witness to Jesus and all of us, an empowerment to change the world. So we the church pray, spirit move, and we the church declare a spirit move, and we the church move and step with the spirit. We are propelled by the power of the living God at work in our midst in most miraculous ways. Spirit, move. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. And good morning again to our North site. We're so glad that you're joining us up in Port Perry. Psychologists tell us that when extreme moments take place in our life of terror or panic or fear, there are three natural responses that are sort of symbiotic to us. They are, they're in our DNA. Most of us know two of them. Some of us don't even think about the third. The first one is you fight. If someone comes at you and you're in a situation where you feel extremely threatened, some of us by personality and background will stand up and fight back. Others of us, our inclination is not fight, but what, anyone know it? It's flight. You want to run from the situation in the moment and you don't want to deal with it. The third one that psychologists talk about a lot, though, is not fight or, or flight, it's freeze. Many of us, when we're in extreme moments of panic or fear or out of control, we do not fight and we do not run. We freeze like a deer in the headlights and we're unsure what to do. Military psychologists spend a lot of time dealing with this issue, especially the second and third one, because they do not know in a combat situation what actually will take place until you're there. And see, that's sort of an interesting place I want to begin today as we're in the book of Acts. See, many of us do not know what our reaction will be in times of great turmoil or fear or danger until we're actually in the situation. And though we may try to prepare ourselves, we are unsure of our response. Some of us might fight, many of us might flee, uh, flee and some of us might uh, freeze in the moment. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we live in a very comfortable country. We live in a very comfortable circumstance overall, most of us, and most of us have not en masse experienced this situation. Personally, some of us have, and we're even working through it in our lives, but en masse, we live in a safe culture. And yet, as we've been learning in the book of Acts, as we've been seeing the Spirit of God move, as the church is birthed, as Jesus was risen from the dead, now we come to this moment where the church, within months of its inception, is being absolutely threatened and they have not been here before. Now, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, let me do the summary. Peter and John go to afternoon prayers. They're walking into the temple. There's a beggar who's 40-plus years old, so my age. He's been crippled since birth, so most people presume that God's judgment is on him. He asks for money. Peter and John don't have money. They look at the man and says, I've got nothing to give you, but I do have this. In the name of Jesus, who is from Nazareth, stand up and walk. 
The man, after 41 years or whatever that number is of not walking, suddenly walks. You can imagine his elation. He runs in the temple and starts dancing. A crowd gathers because they'd seen him for years. Peter and John stand up and preach the good news about Jesus and how this man is evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead because in Jesus' name, who was murdered and is raised from the dead, this man stands healed. The crowd gets bigger. It says that 5,000 men now believe, meaning the church has grown for 15, 10 to 15,000 people in weeks. Peter and John are thrown in jail by the religious leaders for doing this act. The next morning, they're brought in front of the Sanhedrin. Remember, we talked about it. Some version, Jewish version of the Vatican, the Supreme Court, and a bunch of other things. They are threatened and told that they are no longer allowed to preach in the name of Jesus. Do you remember the verse? Here's how it ends in Acts 4.18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, these are the same people that actually took out Jesus. These are the same people that got Jesus crucified. These are the same people who have all the cards. They are the aristocracy. They are the people of power. They are the people of religious note. They are the best theologians, the best lawyers. They are the ones who colluded with the Romans. These are the ultra-powerful people in this moment. And as we learned last week, the Sanhedrin had authority over every Jew on earth according to Roman law. And Peter and John are commanded by their leaders never to speak about Jesus and never to heal in the name of Jesus again. Now, in that moment of threat, months after Jesus' own death and resurrection, what will they do? Will they fight back violently? Remember, Peter is a former religious zealot. Will they run? Will they freeze? Well, what we saw is this. They actually replied with a boldness that was shocking in verse 19, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to God. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Since we are in God's presence, since we're in God's temple, should we obey you as a human counsel or should we obey God? Oh, oh, we know that you as this counsel think you're ordained by God and you alone speak for God, but you are no longer the voice of God because you've rejected the God that you supposedly worship. You have rejected Jesus the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the one seated at the right hand of of God, who, by the way, is God in flesh. Jesus is the ultimate expression of our holy Jewish faith. He's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. We will not, we cannot help ourselves. We have seen, we have heard, we have experienced. We are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. We will not remain silent. Now, this is easy maybe for two, but what happens when the threat moves from two to thousands? Will the same power and courage that filled these two spread to a whole church that is brand new? And let me bring you why this is important. We are living now as Christians in a post-Christian context, which by the week is becoming more and more hostile to the good news about Jesus, to the call of Jesus, to the lordship of Jesus, to the ethics of Scripture. And this is not some sort of fantasy conversation. What we are hearing about and learning about today is on the ground for us at this moment. And not just for our church, every church that is in our country and also in the West. And so how they respond in this moment of growing threat is absolutely important that we learn at the beginning of the threat, not at the end. This is a preparatory message for us because like I've been saying to you for two years, suffering 
For the gospel of Jesus Christ in the country we love is coming. Make no mistake about this. So they are told by their leaders, stop doing this. Now they are dismissed because they've broken no law. And now they come back to a growing gathering of Christians. And that they're going to have to work through. Fight, flight, or freeze. It says in Acts 4.23, this is where we're going to be today, that on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had already told them or said to them. So now they gather to evaluate the given threat, which is real. The fear they're experiencing is real. Now retreat is possible, and now this is going to cost them big time. These people were realists. The assault had come from the highest place, the highest legal, religious, wealth, power connected. Crisis had now come. And oh, here's the line I want everyone to listen into. The status quo, you just believe what you believe and I'll believe what I'll believe and we'll all get along, is no longer acceptable. So the question is, are they going to lay down their faith? Would they give in to the threats? Would they become more bold? Would they turn to voting and violence to get their way? Would they suddenly become mute and silent? Would the leaders and the Holy Spirit courage that actually was upon Peter and John only for that moment spread to the thousands that don't really truly even know each other yet? See, would this fizzle out or explode? At this critical moment, this crisis could lead to a crash or this opposition could lead to a God-given opportunity. Now, the answer that we need to look at is how they respond because this is so significant to what we are going to have to learn as Christians in the West. So how did they respond? Did they vote and march and get angry? No. Did they become silent and given? No. Did they freeze in the moment and say, no, this is how they responded. And by the way, their response is so biblical and beautiful and countercultural, even to the heart of Christians. Acts 4.24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, by the way, this has been the pattern the whole time, right? Jesus physically raises from the dead. And he says to his followers, meets with them for 40 days, by the way, I need you to stop and stay in Jerusalem and you are to wait because if you wait and pray, I'm going to give you a gift. His name is the Holy Spirit. You'll have power from on high. They waited. They were given the Spirit. Acts 2, the description of the early church, they devoted themselves not only to teaching and communion, but also prayer. Here's the point. Time and time again, when people of God choose to wait and pray, God always shows up. Here's the pattern we see in the scriptures. Just before another wave, just before another filling or outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is always in the scriptures and in church history, desperate, biblically informed, expectant prayer. And the pattern is repeated once again. When they heard this, when they were told by the most powerful people in their community who were in collusion with the Romans that, that they had to be quiet, this is how they respond in the moment. 
They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now notice, notice this. They raised their voices together. Maybe one person prayed and everyone was saying amen, or actually they were all praying at the same time. Here is the point. They together as a community were saying in a unified way, God, please hear the prayers of us together before your throne. And they understood something. They understood in their DNA and core that prayer is the ultimate place to change the world. When you pray to God, the heavens crash down into the earth. Oh, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is where? Down on, uh, in heaven as it is in earth. See, prayer is the place of encounter between the divine and humans. It is the place of comfort. It is the place when everything seems futile, heaven's view is grasped for a moment moment. It is where our struggles and our enemies and our sickness and our opposition are put in their proper place. They are seen for what they truly are as very insignificant compared to the one that we are invoking and praying to. Prayer is the place of supernatural, heaven-given, heaven-breathed power. It is in the prayer closet and it is in the, com in the community of prayer that we hear and understand and obey the will of God. It is actually the literal place where God partners with his church on earth. The meeting that takes place in this moment is done together, is done in community. See, we need to understand this. There is greater power when the church prays and roots themselves together. There is greater power because Jesus said this, where two or three gather in my name, I am present. When a community chooses to expose itself to the presence of the living God together and has the scriptures open while they're praying, significant life change and empowerment takes place. Now watch this. They are threatened and their lives are now at stake. Remember, Peter and John have already spent a night in jail. They're now gathered together. They raise their voices together in prayer. And the content of their prayer is unbelievably informed. Here's how they begin. Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. <clears throat> now notice how they begin their prayer. They do not begin with the threats. They do not talk about the Sanhedrin. They don't talk about their own leaders betraying them. They don't talk about Romans. They don't talk about crucifixion. They don't talk about injustice. They don't say, God, but we spend a night in jail. God, it's not fair because we healed this guy <clears throat> and we were being kind. But by the way, they didn't care. No, no. This is what they do. They start their prayers with God. They look up. They do not look down. They look up and they do not look sideways. They look up. And notice what they call God in this prayer moment. Sovereign. Now, we live in a country where we have a sovereign named Queen Elizabeth. If you're watching The Crown, you know all about her now. Huh? Now, we have a monarch in this country that has no power. She is symbolic. She is a unifier by symbol only. But when these people gathered, they had an understanding about sovereignty we do not accept or understand in the West. When they cried sovereign, I love their cry. They were saying, to you, the real ruler, to you, the real monarch, to you, the supreme king over all things, you are in charge. You have all things in your hands. We don't have it in our hands and neither do our enemy. Now they say, to you, king, and then they say, King, Lord, Sovereign Lord. Now, this matters so much and is going to matter by the end of this message. The word that the church invokes here for Lord 
is not the usual one we read in the New Testament, just meaning God. This is something so profound. This is one of the few places in the whole Bible this word is used. This is where we get our modern word despot or dictator from. Now let me say this right up front. God is full of love and full of holiness. He never is like a human dictator that does wicked things. But this is why they use this name of God. They say to you, God, you are the ruler with absolute power. No one is stronger than you. No one is greater than you. You are a perfect despot or dictator. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the creator of the sea. You are the creator of everything that fills the sea and everything that fills your creation, seen or unseen. You are even the creator of the very ones that are threatening us, seen or unseen. What you say goes, O Lord, O King of love and O King of justice and O King ultimate judge. We are invoking and praying to you because in the end you will vindicate those who are right. We praise you, O God. We declare, we boldly confess that our God is even over the threatening Sanhedrin. Notice, notice their their confession brings comfort and expresses trust. God is creator, and so since he is the creator, he is more powerful than anything that has been created. Those threatening us are people. Those things that inspire them, that are unseen, have a beginning. We have a beginning, but God has no beginning or no end because God is above time and space. He is the creator, and when the creator speaks, the creation must bow no matter what it wants to do. Well, far from being done, here's the content of their prayer. They trust in and invoke the sovereignty of God and express God for who he truly is. And then very quickly in this prayer meeting, the very next thing they do is they start reading back the scriptures to God. Now let me tell you why this matters. God's word is perfect. It's eternal. And if there's one thing that God loves hearing in his ears is his word. Because his word does not lie and God does not lie. And so what, this hap- what is happening here is the church begins to pray back the promises and the truth of Scripture to God. Because they know God will always answer his own word. They pray out of Psalm 2. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against God and against his anointed one. I preached this uh, a long time ago in this church and when I was doing this, I I loved what the word rage meant. The word rage comes from the farm. It comes from horse stables. It was a word used to describe high-bred horses. These are, this word is where you get the neighing and the intensity and the biting and the, the kicking of a, of a high-bred uh, racehorse. Do you understand why the church is using this? Basically, here's what they're praying back to God, a very un-Canadian prayer, but a very biblical one. These powerful men, these educated men, 
These men who have the power of life and death, these men who have the best theological degrees, these men who are the best lawyers and politicians, these people that have all the money, they are like thoroughbred horses. And yet you, God, you hold the reins and you will put a bit in their mouth. And when you tell them to turn, they will turn. You will bring discipline from heaven. There is no human nor demon that is more powerful than our God. There is not a religious leader or a government or a person or my family. There is nothing seen or unseen that can control our God. Oh, selfish ambition and vain conceit that anyone would try to stand against God the Father and his son, Jesus from Nazareth, whom he has anointed. They pray this. They start with God in his absolute sovereign authority. They pray back the scriptures to God. And then they do something which I find lacking as I attend so many moments of prayer with many of us. They pray back their own experiences to God. So much of the time we forget that our own encounters in our history with God should inform our prayer life in the now. And so the church begins in this moment to actually tell God again and remind God again and also remind themselves of what has just taken place in the last five or six months as a place to remind them that they actually are on the winning side. They said, indeed. Oh, right, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and, and, and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, this list is wild because all these people hated each other, hated each other. And yet, when there's a common enemy, a common enemy can make you a friend for a moment and make you a strange bedfellow. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, this is Herod. This isn't Herod the Great. Herod the Great, this was his dad. Herod the Great is the one who tried killing Jesus when he was two years old, who slaughtered all the children in the Christmas story. Herod the Great is the one who helped rebuild the great temple. He was the great architect and the great person who had been ordained by Rome to run the Jews. He called himself, what? The king of the Jews. He's the one with the wise men. This is his son, Herod Antipas. This is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded after a lot of alcohol and sexual misconduct. This is the one who actually helped Jesus get taken out. You have Pontius Pilate, who is Caesar's representative to declare that Israel is a broken and owned country by Rome. The Gentiles here refers to the Roman occupation. And then you have the people of Israel, the actual people in Jerusalem, the people of God and the leaders who they themselves, though they hate Herod and did not believe he was the king of the Jews and dis were disgusted by Pontius Pilate and prayed that God would deliver them from the Gentiles, they themselves joined forces to have Jesus removed. Now this picture is great and it's raw and it's honest. It actually is the seed it is the seed form, the shadow of the truth hanging over all of humanity. All people are responsible for the death of God's Son. The most moral and the most immoral, the monotheist and the pagan, the leader of the people, our lostness is deeper and longer and higher than any of us even want to admit. It's why Paul later would write, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's why he would write later, speaking to Christians, but reflecting on our history in Romans 5.10, for if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, the early church gathers and invokes the name of God, believes in the sovereignty of God 
prays the scriptures back to God, reminds God of how he, and the, he actually has not been overcome because look at the next verse. They pray this back. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Oh yes, all these people conspired together thinking they had the last say, but we as the church in this prayer meeting, we are declaring the truth of God that actually you're in charge and you orchestrated all of this because you actually loved us so much. You were gonna take all of our hate and all of our, our brokenness and all of our eneminess and all of our, and make it love. It's what Paul wrote. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. What Paul penned in the early church prayed is this, that God gave Jesus over before the beginning of time. Within himself, God chose to give himself for our sakes. For God so loved the world that he gave himself for us. So they pray out of the sovereignty of God and they declare his work and they remind themselves uh, that human and demonic failure uh, to thwart God is true. And then in this moment, after they've had this unbelievable moment of prayer... They pray three very simple, very direct, very expectant, extremely dangerous prayer requests to God. And as I go through these, I want you to listen closely. Because again, these prayer requests are not ones we usually find in our church or in most churches. They're very un-Canadian. They're extremely biblical. Lord... Prayer request one, consider their threats. Huh. You need to understand the power of this, this prayer. Look, Lord. No, 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 look. Listen, God. See them. Look at those people and look at the leaders and listen to what they are saying. And not only them, you look, O oh God, at the forces behind them that blind them and inspire them to hate us and your son. O oh God that sees all and O oh God that knows all, we are asking you to attune your ears to their violence. Attune your ears, O oh God, to their threats. Move your holy eyes and focus your attention on them. Now that is a scary request when you are invoking it in front of the king of the universe who sees all, knows all, is full of power, who is holy, who is love, is the ultimate judge and can take you out in righteousness. God, what you have begun is being threatened by created things. How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this to continue? Defend your bride. And then the second thing they pray is this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and, and enable your servants now to speak your word with great boldness. So we've been told to shut up. We've been told we can't talk about Jesus. We've been told that we can't heal in Jesus' name. And so here is our request. Number one, look at our enemies. It's your deal, not our deal. You're the ultimate judge. You deal with them. Second of all, here's our request. We would like a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit once again. We want to have heaven-given courage to spread not just on Peter and John, but spread against the whole church, across the whole church that's beyond personality and beyond our comfort. Help us, O oh Lord, to invite 
invite people to Jesus, to courageously speak about Jesus, to declare his work, to declare his call, to declare his will. Help us to proclaim there is no other name name under heaven given to humanity to be saved except Jesus from Nazareth. And no matter the cost, we are asking that the Spirit of God would move in such power that you would grant us unnatural courage and boldness even to suffer for the name of Christ. So Lord, consider the threat because it's real. And number two, we are asking you, since we've been told to be silent, to make us unnaturally loud about Jesus Christ and not shrink back. And we are declaring we need gas from another place. We need a battery that's not our own because we are going to fight violently and that's not your will. Or we're going to run away and that's not your will. Or we're going to freeze and that's not your will. We need the Spirit to move and make us people that are bold beyond ourselves. And then they pray this third prayer request. And oh, by the way, if that's not just good enough, would you do this too, O Lord? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, take your hand, O God, and insert it into your church. And here's what our request is. We want a lot more of the miracle stuff. We want actually a lot more of what got us in trouble in the first place. It's like they're praying this. Hey, Jesus, remember a few days ago? By your spirit, we healed that 41-year-old guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we were thrown in jail. Lots more of that, please. We want lots more trouble. We want more people to be healed in Jesus' name. We want more people to actually be freed from demons in the name of Jesus. And why? Because healings and deliverances open the door to give the gospel of Jesus and introduce the world to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the healer and who is the deliverer. We want the church to be marked by signs and wonders. Why? So we feel... No. We want signs and wonders so the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. See, the supernatural work of Jesus that he did and then the 12 did is now being evidenced among the people. Like I preached a few weeks ago, this is the beginning of gift-based ministry because here is what's beginning to take place. In the book of Acts, it starts with Jesus, well, the Gospels, then in the book of Acts, the Apostles, and then non-Apostles, but not the whole church, but non-Apostles, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, Agabus, start doing these things. And then in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, you see people with certain gifts start doing this. Here's the point. They're saying, oh God, pour out your spirit with such power that all the spiritual gifts go on steroids, can't be stopped, and more and more people get saved and delivered, and everyone's going to have to talk to us even if it costs us something. Well, after they prayed, the place that they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. By the way, that's not metaphor. Luke isn't saying, you know, using some, no, no, no. The physical place was physically shaken. It's what scholars call theophany. The physical manifestation of God's power to affirm his presence. From the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation, there are multiple occurrences where God moves from omnipresence to palpability. And when he gets so close, there is a physical place response. 
Sometimes it is the place is shaken. You can read about that like at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And sometimes the people themselves fall over or, or they are removed in the sense they have to fall in God's presence because he is so strong and powerful and present. So God answers his people by filling them with the Spirit again. They've already been baptized in the Spirit at conversion. This is another filling. And at this moment, they know he has answered their prayer. I love what one of the great church fathers, Chrysostom, once wrote, the great preacher of his generation hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago. He says, the place was shaken and it made them more unshaken. Isn't that good? So God gives filling empowers their spiritual gifts, overcomes fear, tells them to stand, says yes to the suffering for Jesus, and oh, here's what most pastors don't keep preaching and need to in this moment. What is the result of the grand, bold prayer? Well, it's not just the evangelism, and it's not just the gifts. Something else happens. The church has profound character. What happened in Acts 2 happens again. Acts 4.32, all the believers were with one heart and one mind. We see that the Spirit of God produces the fruit of the Spirit. In Acts 2, they were called glad and sincere. Here they have one heart, one mind. They are thankful. The church had unity. There was an absence of pretense. They were open-hearted and generous. They were not full of grudges against each other, not envious, not jealous, not bitter, not marked by division, and had no problem submitting. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person even among them. And from time to time, those who own land or houses, I mean, they're so crazy with Jesus right now, they start selling land and houses. They brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, God's answer to their prayer was he produced a church that was doing community biblically, was worshiping passionately, was serving radically, was giving joyfully and sacrificially, and was praying expectantly and inviting courageously. Anyone want to look like a church like that? But look at verse 32 and verse 34. 32 talks about giving, and verse 34 talks about giving. And as we are taking this message as preparatory for what is coming, look closely. This is about social justice. This is about feeding the poor. This is about radical generosity. Is it good? It is. But that is not the good news. Just like miracles, giving and helping is not the end. Social justice and giving to the poor and being radically generous is to open the door to share the good news. That's why between verse 32 and 34, there is once again a call to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. Feeding the poor and giving is never the end goal. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the end goal. Social justice and care without the good news is not enough. It is kind. It is wonderful. It is not Christian. So understand, like miracles and deliverances and giving and social justice, it is always to open the door to tell them about the great shepherd. Now Luke does something amazingly here. He focuses in on one individual that is such a description of the local church at this time. His name's Barnabas. He's so filled by the Holy Spirit 
that amazing things take place. Now, his, his name means son of encouragement. And joy and generosity and excitement and obedience and submission are all words that would mark him and mark the church. His name was Joseph, his original name, verse 36, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you've done, if you've done church for a while, or you know your Bible, you should be asking, is that right? Because I'm pretty sure when Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto for our movement, he said this in Matthew 6, 6, 3 and 4, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be done in secret. So your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So what's the deal with this? Well, uh, let me just say, read all of Matthew 6. His point is not to forbid testimony or never to be public. It's about motives. Matthew 6.1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, you got your reward when people went, ooh, I'm pretty amazing. Ooh, ooh okay, great. Has no eternal ripple. Here's the point, and this is so significant for our church again. Remember, the Bible is nothing but a compilation of public testimonies. Barnabas comes and does this in public. He gives God glory. He supports the community. Here, right here, you see the man's name. And not only you see the name, you see what he sold. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. Here's what I want to get across today. We need more stories, more testimonies to be shared of every kind in public. This has to actually become normal in church. Why? Because it gives God's glory, it builds faith, and actually it inspires other people to imitate what you're doing. So many of us have been too quiet for too long about what God is asking us to do or what God has done in our life. It was like Lori saying three weeks ago, shame on you if you're not sharing what God has done in your life. In your connect group or in the church, we need to say yes, out of right motive, I did sell my cottage in the name of Jesus and I cannot wait to see what God does with it. Now, some of you are going, I'm going to sell my cottage. Will you talk to Jesus? My point is this. What you see here in this individual is profound generosity. It is done in public. It is laid at the apostles' feet because he submits to leadership and he says, now let's get on with the kingdom of God. God asked me to do this. And by the way, I'm not doing this for my own glory, but you should imitate me too because there is great joy when you follow Jesus. Now here's what I want to bring home today. As we are sitting in the West at this moment, and things in some ways feel darker. They're not. They feel it. As we live in a culture where we used to be at the center and now we are at the side. Where what we believe by the day and the week seems more awkward and weird and backward and medieval and fill in a thousand other blanks. I just want to say to everyone, breathe. We've been here before as a movement. Lots of times. And actually when God moves the church sometimes to the side... It's the best time to grow. And what we see in these passages is some very good learning for our church and all churches, by the way, in Canada and in Europe and soon in America to understand how we do this right and what we don't do also. So let me walk this through. How do you live in a de-Christian or post-Christian growing hostile context? Well, here's the first thing. 
and it's not where I was expecting to go, and it's not naturally where you'd think we would go. Ready? Unity. Unity. The believers were one heart and one mind. Now, the one thing we all need to remember as we're hearing this is this is a snapshot. By chapter 5, the unity is broken, as Dave will preach next week. But in this season, God produced by his overwhelming presence, the awe of God, like we read about in Acts 2, because the Spirit of God was there, an amazing unity. See, behind the amazing joy-filled giving and behind the preaching and the deliverances and the miracles and behind the bold prayers that are being answered and, and behind the shaking of buildings, there is a short season where the Spirit gives unnatural unity, a love that makes no sense but is heaven-breathed. And of course, where the Holy Spirit is, this makes sense because there is freedom. Where the Holy Spirit is, there is love. There is death to selfishness and death to ego. I love what Augustine, the great church father, once said. He said, never forget that the Holy Spirit is the eternal bond of love and peace between the Father and the Son. And so the implication is if the Holy Spirit is the eternal bond within God himself of love, when the Holy Spirit unites us together, how could we not have the same evidence? Unity and love and forgiveness and life change. See, what is critical is this, as things get more precious and more difficult around us, our unity must be defended at all costs, because if the center breaks, the whole thing implodes. But unity is a spirit-given thing. So as I was praying this week, I was saying, okay, Jesus, I mean, I've, as I was praying, I was like, oh, fail, 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 fail for me. So by the way, I always pray before I preach about me. So I'm wrecked already. So, okay. How do I preach this? How do I teach this? And what I heard back was so very interesting. He said, don't preach it. Just read scriptures to the congregation and let me speak. I said, okay. So I'm going to do this right now. If unity among us is that high a priority, if, is the greatest, one of the greatest evidences of revival and the move of God, that means that discord and disunity is not of his will. So I'm just going to read verses, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to convict any of us. And maybe you'd like to say, if you're a Christian, Lord, I'm even open. Ephesians 4.2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Is that you? Ephesians 4.30. Actually, let me ask this question. Do you attack the bond of peace? Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for on the day of redemption. Get rid of, I love these, you can't get out of these words, all bitterness. By the way, if you're getting distracted, come back. Rage, anger, brawling, slander. Every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other 
just as Christ, as in Christ, God has forgiven you. Ephesians 5.21, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.13.5, agape love, God love, doesn't dishonor anybody. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I need to ask this this morning. I'd like you to pull out your record of wrongs against others in this church and in other churches, please, right now. It's not permitted. Hebrews 13, 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account to God himself. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The great work of the Spirit is ripping out all the stuff here that is not of Him. Our unity is paramount. This is the third time I've been led to preach about unity since I've started this series. So, a simple prayer among us, Lord, don't relent until you deal with our unity. Here's the second thing I want to point out today. The way we respond to a growing hostile environment is not only asking God to so change our character that we love each other unnaturally, but actually we learn how to pray boldly, expectantly, and desperately. And I would just like to point this out this morning. If you're a note taker, their prayers were prayed in good times, great times, bad times, and evil times. And what is the content of their prayer? I would just encourage you to write this down. They actually believed in God's sovereignty, do you? They actually believe God is in charge. Not only that, they fill their prayers with Scripture. They bring up their own encounters with God regularly so they themselves are reminded about the good faithfulness of God. They are urgent prayers. They are agreed prayers. And what we learn is that actually prayer is the inception point for us overcoming conflict, persecution, criticism, temptation, and overcoming fear. It's not the whole thing, but it's the beginning point. Our unity and our character with each other matter more than I think most of us realize. The role of prayer in your life, in your connect group, in our church is paramount. And here's where I'm going to end today. As I was praying over this passage, a familiar passage, my great sense was that we as the church were to actually pray these prayer requests, these three dangerous prayer requests. And I would like to invite you this morning to pray them with me. And so would you just get yourself ready to pray? If you're a seeker or a skeptic here this morning, we're so glad you're here. Hang out. You can observe this. Nothing wild's going to happen. Well, I can't guarantee that, actually. I take that back. But honestly, like, when I looked at these prayer requests, man, these are, these are the prayer requests we need answered in our region, too. So I'm just going to pray them simply, and I want you to be able to say amen to them. 
So just let's pray. Lord, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, Holy Spirit who unites us in this body, in this church, but unites us with Jesus' movement around the world. Here's our prayer, and we're praying this actually for our region. Number one, we're going to pray a prayer, Jesus, we don't usually pray. We want you to see our enemies. There are many people in our region, God, who mock your gospel, pervert your gospel, laugh and spit and attack the church and also you, Jesus. There are some, a small group, but there are some that actually are in league with darkness who actually pray for our downfall and invoke darkness against not just our church but other churches. There are others, Lord, who actually go to church and are even leaders, but they actually don't believe your gospel. And we're going to pray this really humbly because, Jesus, every one of us used to be your enemy just because of our own sinful behavior. So there's no judgment. But here's our prayer. Lord, see our enemies. Neighbors, friends, family members, colleagues, leaders, who oppose your work and your will in our region. And our first prayer is, Lord, as you taught us to pray, would you forgive them for this in Jesus' name? But also we pray that you would make them our brother and sister, that you'd actually make the most anti-Christian or apathetic people in our region the most bold Christians among us. But Lord, if they continue to resist your will, then we pray that you would deal with them as you see fit. And then, Lord, turn your eyes to every demon in this region, every principality, power, ruler, and authority that thwarts and stops and attacks the church. Lord, you've defeated them. We are asking in Jesus' name, act. Remove their influence in such a degree in this region that actually thousands would come to Christ because their bondage has been removed. Lord, second of all, we pray for power to witness. Every one of us is coming before you and being honest. We do not want to flee. We don't want to use violence to fight or to protest. We don't want to freeze. So now, O Lord, consider their threats and enable people at C4 and in all churches that love you in the region to speak your word with great boldness. And lastly, we pray you'd release your power through this church. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. And Lord, lastly, Spirit of God, we are so desperate for your ongoing move. We are asking that you would deal with our character, our lack of submission, our disunity, our discord, personally and corporately in any way, so the Spirit of God would have free reign to do what he wants among us. Lord, hear our prayers, and we pray you'd shake our church. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name. And could everyone say a heartfelt amen to that? Amen.